Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Diane Guerrero, and this is How It Is, the show where you hear women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. And this episode, we're talking about how being authentically ourselves in an ever-changing world can actually be kind of messy. Welcome to the gray area. You're a queen. Good morning, sunshine. I guess I don't know if it's technically morning for you right now, even though I definitely think you should be listening to this show first thing in the morning. You know, get settled, have your cafecito, and get down with how it is. I just wrapped a show I've been working on, so I've been chilling a little. Maybe in my spare time, I've fallen down a YouTube wormhole of Oscar Isaac singing in Spanish. Um, he's an excellent singer. I'm just saying. Anyway, I've also been reading a ton of children's books because I'm interested in writing my own children's book. Because I contain multitudes. So, in the last episode of How It Is... We talked all about our anger. Our rage has the power to move mountains. But progress is not always so straightforward. Sometimes our learning curve looks like a roller coaster. And I've noticed that in this Me Too moment, a lot of the conversation is about right and wrong, black and white. But we all know it's more complicated than that. Here's Reese. I think this is an incredible moment where we actually might start to feel the balance of male and female in the world. And we don't know what it looks like. So that's when you talk about gray area because we've never seen it. So men have never seen it. Women have never seen it. And we're kind of sitting in a little bit of discomfort right now because things aren't clear. But I think it's our job as citizens of the world to try and really have these conversations with each other. Folks. We need to talk about the gray area. There are gray areas in life. It's kind of a gray area, but yes. I find that life is mostly gray areas, especially the parts I can't reach with moisturizer. Love or hate, no gray area, just like life. The place where things don't have a clear answer, where we're confused, where we make honest mistakes or interpret a situation differently than others. So today, we have three incredible women, Jezebel founder Anna Holmes, writer Kayla Whaley, and comedian Jenny Yang, talking about their own personal gray areas and why we need to give ourselves the space to be nuanced, because we are nuanced. So we may as well be honest about it. Isn't that right, Jenny? Okay, I'll just be honest. I really love The Bachelor. Okay, and when I get into certain seasons of The Bachelor, I some there's always this little voice in the back of my head that says, you shouldn't enjoy this. It feels like a conflict to me sometimes, but I think what it says is 
that we aren't perfect, that just because we strive for certain ideals doesn't mean that we also don't live in this world as it is now. See? The gray area isn't always so serious. We'll hear more from Jenny later. Now, I'm so excited to have Anna Holmes on the show. She's a digital media pioneer. She founded the Gawker website Jezebel, which is a site for celebrity, sex, and fashion for women without airbrushing. It was one of the first places online where young women could really just be themselves and call out crappy things they saw in the world in their own words. Jezebel got so big that Tina Fey even joked about it on 30 Rock. A young person helped me online post this on JoanOfSnark.com. You stupid meddling bitch. Yes, there's your real voice. There's Abby Grossman. To quote Eleanor Roosevelt, we are Do you understand what you've done? You have signed my death warrant. But Anna's been thinking a lot about the part Jezebel played in outrage culture. That's that internet phenomenon in which people are so willing to come after you with a pitchfork for any tiny mistake you make or any opinion you have which makes the internet a really hard place to have any sort of nuanced conversation. I sometimes feel, or rather I often feel, that Jezebel did play a role in outrage culture. I think that that site was very influential in certain ways, but I definitely have a feeling of complicity in promoting oftentimes unnuanced discussions about certain issues. Uh, That's not to say that all the stories we did were unnuanced, um, especially when they were about complex issues, but we were a blog and part of the metabolism of blogs back then was to produce a lot of content and to have like quick reactive takes on things. We had a lot of things to be angry about, like legitimately, still do. We meaning women um, or women of that cohort or that demographic, primarily young women, but also I would include older women, too. I think that some ways that that anger was expressed was fairly straightforward. And I think sometimes it was expressed through humor and comedy, um, but it was also always pretty bracing. And that made some people uncomfortable. I would like to think that most of the anger that was communicated by the writers on the site was more thought out and measured than that that you would see on any regular internet comment. But I did start to become uncomfortable, you know, towards the end of my tenure there with the ways in which even the kind of most softly worded, slightly irritated about a news story blog post that we put up would be followed by a lot of very vicious, outraged comments, not so much at us, the editors or writers, but at the perpetrator or source of their irritation in the news story to the point that I often felt that people weren't able to make distinctions between issues that I felt deserved that level of outrage and those which maybe didn't. And then it became a a question of how do we moderate, not literally moderate comments, but like how do we moderate our reactions to things so that we can give issues the amount of attention and energy they deserve if we're always screaming at level 10 then people are just going to hear noise (laughs) they're not going to be listening to us the gray area in this conversation or with regards to what we're talking about for me is that I can feel conflicted about the ways that I think my work online 
on Jezebel contributed to unhealthy modes of communication, while at the same time celebrating that our irritation, frustration, anger was wholly legitimate, is wholly legitimate, and not apologizing for that at all. I can hold both of those things in my head or in my hands at the same time. I kind of have to, because I don't regret anything that, that we did or that I did. I have the capacity to have regret. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know that I would say I regret anything, but I do acknowledge that there was a certain tenor to some of the conversations either that we initiated or that we facilitated that are echoed in online discourse today and that aren't particularly productive or healthy. I know I get really worried about what I post and, you know, I have to reread what I'm saying or like even when I do feel really excited about a post or, or sharing my opinion on social media and then somebody goes ahead and shits on it, it makes me feel it just makes me mad because and sometimes I I I want to shut down and then I don't want to share my opinion and I don't feel smart just for the one negative comment. Um, I think we always just have to remind ourselves that people are going to have their opinions and they they don't want to hear they don't want to have a nuanced conversation. I mean, it's safe to say that all issues are nuanced. And if there's no room for that, then we can't have a productive conversation. So in the spirit of celebrating big and complicated ideas, allow me to introduce to you the writer Kayla Whaley. She has a unique take on the gray area she sees surrounding Me Too. It might not be exactly what you expect. Freshman year of college. A group of us are at Rude Rudy's, the kind of club that's perpetually sticky. Only nine o'clock and already, bodies everywhere spilling off the dance floor, back toward the bar, nearly out the door. Navigating them is difficult in my wheelchair, but my friends shove a slow path clear, and we sneak through. Eight of us, including the boy I've fallen for. The music is loud, the air humid. Drops of beer fall warm and enticing from standing height, down onto my arms, my hair, my chest. My skin hums in the strobing dark, the space between him and me, opposite each other in our small circle, is hazy with cigar smoke and the scent of cloves. His smile slices toward me, and we dance. For hours, we dance. After midnight now, those of us who haven't gone to bed are unwinding in his dorm. Someone asks if he had fun. It was fine, he says, but our ratio was off. Ratio? There were more guys than girls, he explains. No, there weren't, I say. Four guys, four girls. Yeah, he says, almost gently. But you don't count. I'd always known boys didn't think of me the way they thought of other girls. But no one had ever stated it outright before. Most of my evidence to that point had come in the form of silence. I'd never been catcalled on my way to school, honked at in a parking lot. Never been leered at or groped. Never accosted, propositioned, or otherwise sexually harassed. A not insignificant part of me wished I had been, though. The fact that I hadn't only shored up my belief that I was sexually objectionable. See, my wheelchair acts as a strange sort of force field. People register disabled before they register woman, and the former always overrides the latter. Disabled bodies are necessarily desexualized ones. We are grotesque or tragic, freaks or angels, 
to be either feared or pitied. We are not desirable. Some treacherous and insistent part of me, then, feared that I would never attract any decent men, so maybe attracting the debased ones was the best I could hope for. And now this boy, this boy whom I'd thought, maybe, had confirmed my fear, spoken it aloud as if it were nothing, as if it were truth. Whenever my friends talked about their fear, pain, and anger at being reduced to a sex object, I felt a brief, sharp tightness in my chest. Envy. I hated that it hurt them, and I understood why it did. But as much as I hated my jealousy, I longed for one stray whistle to be aimed in my direction. Just once, I wanted a man to leer at me across a room, obviously imagining all the things he could do to my body. I fantasized about men following me across campus, calling, Hey, sexy, why don't you come over here for a minute, baby? I didn't want them. I just wanted them to want me. Misogynistic validation, I reasoned, would be better than constant invalidation, surely. Surely, please. Even when I turned to online feminist spaces, I found endless discussions of the ubiquity of sexual harassment. Here was a universal consequence of sexism, misogyny, and rape culture. Here was something all women could understand and rally against. Here was our uniting experience. Me too, said everyone in the room, but not me. I found feminism and I thought, maybe I don't count here either. Despite the best of intentions, the way women tend to discuss sexual harassment as a given relies on the same ideas of womanhood that led to, but you don't count. Those discussions also ignore a different form of harassment I face as a disabled woman. Harassment, after all, isn't about sex. It's about power. And my harassers hurt me through the power of desexualization. Like the Target cashier a few years ago, who said in a baby voice, Oh, such pretty glasses for such a pretty girl. I bet you're smart, aren't you? Like all the older men, and it's always older men, who ask if I've got a license for that thing, with a smarmy wink and a surprise pat on the shoulder or head. It's ableist rather than sexist harassment that I experience, and from all genders. I don't fantasize about being harassed anymore, but I did feel an undeniable thrill just last year when a guy messaged me on OkCupid with, suck my dick, sexy. I didn't respond, but I kept it in my inbox for a while. Its presence was almost comforting. Of course, that comfort was laced with unbearable guilt and self-hatred, but I clung to it nonetheless. I honestly don't know if I'll ever fully excise that desire for the patriarchal stamp of approval, or the feminist one, for that matter. Maybe one day, the way I relate to and interact with my body will mean more to me than how the rest of the world does. For now, though, it's enough to speak and be heard, to assert that yes, I count. Yes, me too. Wow. You know, hearing Kayla Whaley helps me better understand all the shit I've internalized. Those questions of what approval am I looking for from other people or how big a part of my identity is my sexuality and why? 
These are huge questions, especially as a Latina actress. I'm conscious of not only being viewed as a sex pot. I want to be the smart girl. But then when those other actresses are being named like sexiest woman alive, I'm like, well, why the hell not me? Wouldn't that be good for my career? Uh, It's very complicated. That's that kind of gray area that we're talking about. And of course, as I learn more about what Me Too is, it's, it's, for, it's for all women. How do we make sure we are all included and that we all get to be our whole selves? There's this idea that as women, we have to be perfect. Otherwise, we shouldn't be anything. Or we can only be sexy or we can only be angry or we can only be smart. But we're all of those things. It's like what we learned from the movie, The Breakfast Club. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Um, does anybody love 80s teen movies as much as I do? Sometimes the best therapy comes from John Hughes, just saying. I know these movies don't age so well when it comes to race and gender. Like, Long Duck Dong is a monster. And Jake Ryan is actually kind of gross. But... Like Jenny Yang says about The Bachelor, we all have our guilty pleasures. Okay, so we've wrestled with some big subjects today. How we examine our work and our sexuality and our place in the world as women. So I think we should take a minute to just celebrate because we are all of the complicated, nuanced things and that's amazing! Comedian and activist Jenny Yang is also amazing. She's the founder and co-producer of Disoriented Comedy, a nationally touring comedy showcase of Asian American women. She totally nails what it means when we venture into the gray areas in life, but also how it is important to embrace these contradictions. Gray area to me just represents the reality of how we live, but it's not what we hear about. We hear about simple things. We hear about the soundbite. We hear about the one image, you know? Our lived reality is just much more complicated. And I think in a very politicized environment like today, to be able to talk about gray area is so hard because the stakes feel so high that like, if you just speak and utter one feeling about your reality and your truth, it might get misinterpreted or refracted in a larger context in a public platform in a totally other way that you have no control over. And that's what's really scary right now is as much as we all say we want the truth, uh, everyone's really afraid of the truth. And and I don't think we as uh, mass media, that we as public citizens have figured out a responsible uh, way and culture etiquette around talking about really tough things that actually reflect hard issues in our lives. I was very young when I realized being a girl didn't have to mean just one thing Um, because I grew up in a household of two much older brothers and a very sort of dominant patriarchal dad. Ever since I could remember, I just knew that the world was run by men 
and that somehow women got the short end of the stick. <laughs> and I very early on try to figure out how to get around that. <laughs> so I think in my own way, because I was prepubescent, I was hanging around my brothers, I wanted to be like them. They were an influence on me. So you know, I would wrestle with them. They would play with me. I was emulating what I perceived to be more powerful male behavior. And then what what really changed was, I think maybe around the third grade, I would say, you know, I would start getting more uh, sort of like gender policing from my mom. I have a very vivid memory of me sitting very comfortably like a third grader should wearing shorts on a hot summer Southern California day, watching cartoons on our couch with one leg up on the top of the couch and one leg down. And my mom was working in the kitchen, looked out, saw me and just completely reacted and said, hey, don't sit like that. Close your legs. Girls don't sit like that. And I remember that was the first time my mom ever corrected me about that. And I'll never forget that because never before was I ever told I shouldn't take up more space, be bigger than I was. That was when it really hit me that I, that the world, or at least which is my mom and my family, expected me to be different. But there was still a part of me that knew that that wasn't right, right? That that, that felt false, right? That that didn't feel like it had to be my reality. It was a reality. I feel like there's such a gap between how we see ourselves as whole human beings, as individuals, and how the world might see us. And I think that's usually where so much trouble happens. We might feel invisible or not understood, either as individuals or the groups that our face might represent. My happy place would be uh, a place where our public conversations embrace the gray area of who we are as real whole people. She is so right on. You get to be messy. You get to wonder and ask questions and change your mind. Literally, you can change your mind. We change how we approach our work and how we define ourselves sexually and our opinions on the world we live in. Maybe we wouldn't do some things today we did in the past. Culture shifts and so do we, and that's okay. So that's a wrap for today. I have loved being here with you all. I'm just going to snuggle right into this gray area and try to make myself comfy in here because that's real life. Catch us next week for our episode on the power of speech and the sheer amazing power of speaking your truth. As Oprah Winfrey would say, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Now that you've heard how it is, head over to our website to learn about what we do. Visit hello-sunshine.com to read, learn, and get involved in the conversation. In this episode of How It Is, you heard from Anna Holmes, Kayla Whaley, Jenny Yang, and me. I'm Diane Guerrero. I'm a Latina. I'm an author, an actress, an activist. I am a human being a citizen of this universe and this is how it is how it is is a production of hello sunshine it is executive produced by amy s Choi, rebecca lair and reese witherspoon our senior producers are jillian ferguson and michelle lands and our producer is charlotte Coe. 
Sound design by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. You're a queen. Okay, Diane, forgive yourself for that.